Hi, my name is Ilyasa Shabazz, and you're listening to Fly Fidelity. Don't forget to check out the Netflix series, Who Killed Malcolm X? And while you're at it, check out our ShabazzCenter.org or IlyasaShabazz.com and get some of those books. for you and me to devise some kind of method or strategy to offset some of the events or a repetition of the events that have taken place here in Los Angeles recently, we have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. And it is because of our effort toward getting straight to the root that people oftentimes think we're dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? so much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate, you should ask yourself who taught you to hate being what God gave you. And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough. If he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk, Stop sweet talking him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. I was wondering if you could start by talking about the evolution and the education of the protests taking place today versus the height of the civil rights movement. How accurate are the comparisons being made between these protests and those of the civil rights era? Well, um, gosh, you know, we fortunately have um, the examples of I would say our grandparents, right? The young protesters who are out there now. Um, my father said something like, as well as my mother, that this generation of young people will no longer be fearful as their grandparents were. And, you know, and, and how fortunate we are and that this generation would be the generation to save us, that they would demand change, 
that they would no longer sit back and allow all of these injustices to continue. Um, and so, listen, I am absolutely so proud of this generation and especially to be able to galvanize uh, 50 states in the U.S., 18 countries abroad to stand up and say enough is enough. You know, Black Lives Matter means that we will no longer tolerate your injustices. There are 8 billion, 600 million people in the world, and we are the majority. The good people are the majority. The minority are the, the, the criminals, you know, that continue to, uh, you know, feed their egos and their insecurities off of, off of terrorizing people. And so enough is enough. And I have to say that I am absolutely proud of this generation. It was in the 1950s when young people uh, were demonstrating, marching, protesting again for quality housing, quality health care, quality education, quality lifestyles for themselves and their families entitled any human being. And my father came along also in his 20s and he said, we demand our human rights as your brother. We demand our human rights ordained by God. And I think that this generation is much like Malcolm in that they understand that these are their human rights and that there is no one that can determine, you know, that can prevent them from also having a quality life entitled every human being. One of the many things your father was passionate and committed to was the execution of organization in and around protesting. Could you speak to the importance of goals in protests as a way to measure the future after protesting? What I do think is important is, much like those that precede us, they were organized. And so it's great that we can go out and we can march and we can protest and we can demonstrate, but we also have to have goals. And we have to make sure that the, that the people around us share the same goals so that when this march, protest and demonstrating is over, we can look at our checklist and see that we've accomplished our goals. So I think that is one of the most important things to do. Um, you know, during the time that my father um, was, you know, when there was that incident that happened outside of the hospital, that's in the movie, and he was able to get hundreds of Muslims out in front of the hospital to protest, they were organized. They had, you know, they had strategies. One person was responsible for contacting two, and they knew at all times what their goal was, and that is the only way we're going to accomplish them. So I think it's extremely important that, you know, that we um, connect with 10 people and that we have an agenda, excuse me, we have an agenda, and the people around us share in that agenda, and we make sure that we don't stop until we have, we've accomplished our goal. Number one, I think that is, you know, one of the most important things that we can do is to be um, organized, planning, strategizing, and everyone is clear on what our goals are. Because while we're out there marching, protesting, demonstrating, you better believe that those, the other people, they have a plan. And we don't want to be distracted. My father said something like, 
um, you know, you want to make sure that you can think for yourself, see for yourself, and um, listen for yourself. So that way you're in a better position to judge for yourself. So you don't get bamboozled, you know, along the way. And that we are able to accomplish what we are setting out to do. And that is to get rid of injustice. That's to break down some of these laws, policies, and practices that are antiquated and will no longer work. What do you think is some of the things that would make your father most proud and encouraged by happening with these protests today? One of the things I think my father would really be proud um, and, and encouraged by the young people who have galvanized themselves all around the world. But again, having you, we have to have an agenda. It is absolutely so important because look how effective we are. We are the majority. The, the injustice people, the corrupt people, they are the minority. So we can win. We just have to know what it is we are trying to accomplish. Because at the end of all of this, we have to make sure that we've accomplished our goals. We're not brutalized because we're Muslims. We're brutalized because we are black people in America. The power of this man's courage to say this stuff. It changed the entire trajectory of my life. He was becoming a figure that transcended the nation of Islam. It was politics that really started the rift between Malcolm and the nation. No, the white man is the greatest hate teacher that ever lived there. The FBI was definitely afraid of someone like Malcolm X. What kind of democracy is that? People had to start wondering if something happens to Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm becomes the leader, it's over for all of us. And uh, just then the gunfire went off. Malcolm's death never sat right with me. The investigation was a failure. Asking who's guilty is a dangerous question to ask. What is the real story? It's in the history book. Leave it there. Leave it alone. Elijah Muhammad told everybody, do not raise a hand against Malcolm X. He didn't have to give the order. Someone would take care of The FBI should have known. Why doesn't someone want to get to the bottom of this? They never had any intentions of seriously investigating that assassination. That is my mission. I'm not going to stop until I get justice. Because the official count of who killed Malcolm X, it's not true. Who Killed Malcolm X is a docuseries which makes the case that two of the three men who were convicted of Malcolm X's murder are actually innocent and it is uncaught killers of four members of a Nation of Islam mosque in Newark, New Jersey. Could you talk about the significance behind the reconsideration of reopening the investigation into the assassination of Malcolm X? Right, I think that's great. Um, I, I think it's great, uh, you know, because, you know, there's a reason why my father um, was gunned down and it had nothing to do with him being a part of the nation of Islam, it was so much bigger than that. And, and you know, most people do understand that the government, CIA, NYPD, nation of Islam, you know, was infiltrated with uh, some of these agents and that they all played a part in orchestrating the um, assassination of Malcolm because he, you know, Listen, he, they feared him. Look, he was able to go abroad 
and gain the support of um, of many powerful men uh, to take the U.S. up on charges for violating the human rights of 22 million African Americans and um, organizing the 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 I mean establishing the organization of Afro American Unity so that it had the support of the organization of African Unity and understanding. The, the significance in internationalizing that struggle for human rights um, was pretty big. Mm. And so it's so much more than um, a small organization. Well, you know, considering uh, fighting and being jealous and shooting one of their own versus being gunned down and by the, you know, by a bigger organization. This docuseries is a entrance into parts of your father's life and the investigation that we weren't privy to of course before what about the access it's given to yourself has this documentary given you a strength to access parts of your father's legacy and assassination that you weren't perhaps able to access before because you couldn't well i don't think that i don't know i'm personally not looking for strength um you know i believe in god and i believe that what mm-hmm. you do in the dark comes to light. And we each will be judged by how we've lived our lives. And if we know that there is wrong and we do nothing about it, then what does it say about us? What does it say about our values? And so, um, you know, I try to live my life the way I believe God would be pleased. And I don't worry about, you know, the other things. The government has proven itself uh, either unable or unwilling to defend Negroes who are being brutalized uh, by racists and bigots and white supremacists. Then the so- and instead of the so-called Negro man continuing to watch his churches being bombed and his little girls being murdered, it's time for the so-called Negro man to take a stand. My going to Mecca and going into the Muslim world, into the African world, and being recognized and accepted as a Muslim and as a brother uh, may solve the problem for me personally, but I uh, personally feel that my personal problem is never solved as long as the problem is not solved for all of our people in this country. So I remain Malcolm X as long as there is a need to protest and struggle and fight against the injustices that our people are involved in in this country. Our African brothers have gained their independence faster than you and I here in America have. They've also gained re- uh, recognition and respect as human beings much faster than you and I. Just 10 years ago on the African continent, our people were colonized. They were suffering all forms of colonization, oppression, exploitation, degradation, humiliation, discrimination, and every other kind of Asian. And in uh, a short time, they have gained more independence, more recognition, more respect as human beings than you and I have. And you and I live in a country which is supposed to be the citadel of education, freedom, justice, democracy, and all of those other pretty sounding words. I heard shots and I saw people crawling on the floor. I saw, and so I got down too. Then when I was looking out and I saw um, someone um, look in amazement to the front, I knew they had shot my husband. And my children were crying, you know, what's going on? What's going on? Are they going to shoot us? This ghastly nightmare of violence and counter-violence 
or is something that must be condemned by all people of goodwill in this nation. Uh, I don't think violence solves any social problem. It only creates new and more complicated problems. I think it is also necessary to say that the assassination of Malcolm X was an unfortunate tragedy, and it reveals that there are still uh, numerous uh, people in our nation who have degenerated to the point of expressing dissent through murder, and uh, we haven't learned to disagree without being violently disagreeable. Now, naturally, among your father's legacy and many great leaders and activists, people and younger people particularly are having a dialogue about Martin Luther King right now. Can you talk about the relationship your father had with Dr. King and moving towards finding a common platform to work together, which is something that too often the mainstream media tries to disrupt the perception people have? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and I usually compare it to you know, if you look at um, black, quote unquote, individuals in history, um, it, the way it's the way we are taught to learn about some of these historians is putting one against the other. And so it's a divisive tactic um, instead of acknowledging the contributions that each made, much like in America, there was Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, but they're not usually pitted against one another. You usually accept the fact that George Washington made whatever contribution to his country, as well as Thomas Jefferson. But when it comes to W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, it's one or the other. And so it's just always this divisiveness. When Malcolm and Martin, you know, they met at, at a very young age. They were both out in their 20s when they first uh, came onto the uh, civil rights movement and both were assassinated at 39 years old. And um, they had begun to come together. And our families have been very close. My mother and, uh, you know, we call her Aunt Coretta, um, Dr. King's wife, were like best of friends. And both Bernice, who's a friend of mine today, and I have, or, you know, we talk about how, um, you know, grateful we are that they were able to find a sisterhood and trust and love and support in one another because they had experienced uh, such similarities in their lives. Um, my mother, having witnessed her husband uh, being gunned down, you know, horribly uh, right in front of her, and uh, Aunt Coretta, you know, just knowing that her son, her uh, husband, was assassinated is is quite difficult. And I say, you know, for my mother, having had six daughters, and obviously not having, you know, a lot of outside support, um, but all that she was able to accomplish because she never gave in to defeat. She never saw herself as a victim. She never accepted no or I can't as an answer for herself. And, you know, again, that has a lot to do with her faith in God and, and, and understanding her own capabilities and her commitment to God and her commitment to her community her people, her country. And um, so I think that all of these things 
it's so great to learn from those uh, that precede us. So it's important that we do look back and we do honor our ancestors uh, and we take their fight with us for the benefit of our children and our children's children. What about the children? Do you think that the younger generation specifically has a perception of yourself based on your father's legacy that more often than not is misconstrued? I think there are a lot of young people. I'm a college professor and my students, for the most part, understand who Malcolm is. Um, They understand, uh, you know, they understand. And I, I think it's important that that this part of our history is inclusive in our educational curriculum. So no matter what course I teach, I always make sure that I incorporate it from that, you know, from my perspective, um, just as any other professor would, would teach from their perspective and that they see the relevance in understanding, uh, you know, the, why there was slavery, why there was, a, a, you know, the learning about indigenous people and different parts of the, of the world, um, learning about the significant contributions, understanding, uh, you know, my father said what, education is our passport to the future. It is the means to help our children rediscover their identity, thereby increase self-respect Education is our passport to the future for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for us today. So what it says is it's important to learn about our history, to, you know, especially mm-hmm. such a rich uh, history that had been removed from most books and, um, and then for which was taken by others to claim as their own when, you know, the, you know, any sensible person would say, well, if you're in Egypt, if you're in anywhere in that vicinity, you know, the, the, the characters in the Bible, the characters in the Quran, that, that these are people with a lot of melanin in their skin in order to survive the sun. And, um, and, and why anyone would want to take that away from us really speaks volumes, you know, and pretend that it is their own history and their own identity. Has there ever been a battle between yourself and expectations versus your personal distinction and your own identity as a professor? Absolutely not. You know, again, I'm grateful to God, right? No one is perfect. And this is something I also teach my students because yes, when I was young in college, I was overwhelmed by other people's expectations. And as I discovered their expectations of me was because of their misinformation of my father. My father was love, my father was peace. You know, my father fought against the violence, against injustice. And so, you know, when people, when you put Malcolm in proper context, you say, wow, you know, this was, he was only in his twenties. He sacrificed Mm. himself right, to harvest, this, to plant the seeds, you know, to tell people, you know, that you're great, you're wonderful, um, to challenge, uh, you know, truth to power. Um, just so many things that, that my father did. And, um, and so I often say that, and th- 
when you look at what Malcolm did, he did it out of love, you know? He did it out of faith, you know? And he never did anything violent. He gave shock treatment to us, to those of us who had been so badly brainwashed and misinformed for 400 years that we were complacent to these injustices. We were lit, I mean, look at all of the historical traumas and, and terrors, the psychological um, traumas. And to just, and not to say that we just took it, but we had been so severely traumatized. And Malcolm came and gave us some shock treatment. And he did it because he loved his people and he loved him, humanity. He believed in us. He believed in, in the brotherhood and the sisterhood um, of man. Uh, you know, he believed in the brother. Uh, I can't even, you know, he, he, he was just really so great and wonderful. What kind of social or political system is it when a black man has no voice in court, right. has no nothing on his side other than what the white man Right. chooses to give him. Right. My brothers and sisters, we have to put a stop to this. Right. And it will never be stopped until we stop it ourselves. Right. They attacked the victim. And then the criminal who attacked the victim accuses the victim of attacking him. This is American justice. This is American democracy. And those of you who are familiar with it know that in America democracy is hypocrisy. Let's talk about let's let's talk about humanity. Does the quantity and scope of these protests does that for you reduce to saying that leadership is lonely? Do you think that there's an element that leadership is less lonely based on these protests? of the scope that have been happening lately? That's a brilliant question. You're so brilliant. I tell you, you're coming up with all of these really outstanding questions. Um, it's good to know that, yes, that you are a brilliant young man. Um, so that's really, and that's a really interesting question. You see, that would be excellent because when people are not aware then you just have a few leaders out there, right? And they're trying to wake people up. And and my father certainly, you know, was lonely. And when you read his diary, you see how lonely he, he was. And, and, and you realize how much of himself he sacrificed at such a young age, traveling all over the place, you know, to ensure that, you know, the, the human rights, you know, were met to ensure that no one's human rights continue to be violated, right? I, I think today that so many seeds have been planted, that so many leaders are sprouting up everywhere. And what is wonderful is that there can be camaraderie in this leadership, right? And so it's not this sense of feeling, you know, so alone and feeling, you know, somewhat fearful. What do you think the biggest misconception people have of you, Dad, is? So it's always this thing of, um, you know, Dr. King was nonviolent, Malcolm X was violent. And I'm like, you guys have got to be kidding me. Or I might have someone say something to me about my father being controversial and, you know, all of these things. And I'm like, you're kidding me. How can you say that this man was controversial when he was fighting 
against injustice, you know? And, you know, do I agree with my father when he speaks about uh, self-defense? 100%. Because it's like if someone throws a bomb in your house, you don't just sit back and let the bomb consume your house, the fire, you know, consume your house. You get your family to safety and then you attempt to put the fire out. And that's what my father said. So, you know, it's always making sure that we put uh, the information in proper context, especially when it comes um, to the leaders, um, you know, the, to the leaders of this generation. How do you think hip hop within the past five years has spoken to the love, respect and integrity your dad represented? How do you think it's responding right now with these protests? Well, listen, you know, I think it's great because when hip hop started, it was just so outstanding. There were young um, people, it was my generation, they were informing, they were communicating, they were, you know, just, it was just great sense of expression. And, you know, even I think of KRS-One with Boogie Down Productions, when his song, he talked about overseer, 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 and then he, you know, sped it up and it became officer. And just to show the correlation of um, the continued um, oppression and corruption and and so forth. And, you know, then fast forward, we're being so effective. And there's always, when you make advancements, that's why it's important to understand history. When you make advancements, there are other forms of distractions that somehow put out there and we are undermined and then before you know it, we're back where we were 50 years ago. So we have to make sure that that does not happen to us again. Um, because then I believe it was in the late eighties, um, the music industry took control of hip hop. And now the people who were having these music, uh, con music contracts, they had to denigrate women and there was um, C. Dolores Tucker and Reverend Calvin Butts who were galvanizing uh, people saying, listen, you know, stop calling your women these names. Stop denigrating yourselves. Continue to take pride in who you are and your lyrics. And, and so, again, it's having to make sure that we dot all of our I's and cross our T's so that we do not allow anyone to come in and undermine our accomplishments, that we do not allow anyone to come in and, and allow us to be distracted. And my father talked about being bamboozled and um, hoodwinked and led astray. So we just have to stay mm. focused and, and sharp and, and not allow any kinds of distractions, uh, you know, to come in and, change our direction, change the direction of, you know, of, of this great um, accomplishments we are making right now. Mm. You mentioned the industry, of course, trying to censor hip-hop and still trying to censor hip-hop, of course. Now, for myself, many years ago, hearing the teachings of uh, the 5% Nation, for myself, was via hip-hop. And, of course, that got messed up when the industry stopped this voice, you know, with, hey. with 
people like Brand Nubian. I yes. think it's important we say Absolutely. their names. People like Brand yes. Nubian, Wu Tan, Naz, X Clan. Does the do you think there's enough resistance in the creativity of hip hop artists versus an artist's life outside of their music? Um, there are some artists, and no matter what, they still are effective. They still, you know, come. I mean, Kendrick Lamar's performance on the Grammys was absolutely brilliant. And I think now is a time that more people can even appreciate it. Because you don't have to sell your soul. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to sing someone else's lyrics in order to get a record deal, you know? And I think as long as we understand that there is a God, God is bigger than man, right? And, and you know, that we'll be okay. Tupac is um, more than just a, an influencer from an artistic point of view. He, it feels like his spirit is traveling through your records now in many respects, the way that you refer to him and mm -hmm. his deep reference point. For you, mm -hmm. obviously, he played a huge role on on *To Pepper Butterfly* with that with the piece at the end, which was beautifully done. Mm -hmm. But you reference him again on this record, mm -hmm. you know, in particular talking about it. You know, I imagine how this must be how Park felt when he felt like the apocalypse was coming. You know right. what I mean? And so he's never too far away from your thoughts. Never, ever. Um, Why? It, it's just some man that that I hold dear, just in my memories of just growing up in, in the city. I mean. This dude impact, you know, not only on me, but on the culture. It's something I can never forget, mm. you know, from physically seeing him to hearing him on record, uh, to him applying himself in the community and actually being right there with us. It's just something that I hold dear, you know. Um, no matter how many times I come into my own, you know, as Kendrick Lamar, which I felt I've, I've, I've done that over the years, you know, you grow into your own artist. Mm. Um, I will always have that, that sense of reaching a certain standard as far as, you know, empathy and compassion toward a record the same way Pac approached music. It will always be in the back of my head to never forget that. No matter how big the hit record gets, no matter how big the album gets, I always had that compassion and that's why his memory and his legacy in my music will never leave. Your father often said, when you teach a man, you teach a community, but when you teach a woman, you raise a nation. That's right. How, how do you think the Me Too movement is speaking to what's been going on within recent years with nation building globally? Well, I don't know that Me Too movement goes with um, raising a nation. Um, well, Me Too... Well, you know, listen, the Me Too movement is about men not acknowledging or taking advantage of women. Is that right? Right. I don't know that Me Too movement raising a nation. Um, well, you know, we're talking about the power of a woman and, and recognizing uh, her place uh, in society and, and that it, it's it's pretty um, impactful. It is the woman who gives the child um, their identity um, and, and, and how important that is in raising future generations. So looking at the, the role of women, the, the, the power of women. 
you know, that, that you know, is important. Um, as is looking at the role in men or the role, you know, mm. then, and, and sometimes when you talk about the role of men, the role of women, then they say, well, what about those who don't identify as man or woman? I forgot what the, um, you know, so that just gets a little tricky. But um, I don't know that that's a question that you, that question is for me. One of the things we have been able to see recently, which has been encouraging, is the number of private companies posting messages on social media and have made statements about this unrest. What would you like to see from business leaders in this moment yourself? Well, I would like to see business leaders um, take charge in helping to uh, ensure that the information is properly shared, for instance, that our educational curriculum, you know, in America and around the world is based on historical facts now because it hasn't been, that our educational curriculum is inclusive of, of you know, first of all, we know that civilization began in Africa. We know that God blessed this land with everything, with natural resources, with sun, with gold, with diamonds, with the things that we make, the phones. We know that it is a, a place of, that has been tremendously blessed. Um, that there were scholars and architects and priests and farmers, and the list goes on and on. Founders of thriving, rich, colorful civilizations. So I think that is important to make sure that our, our books are you know, include this information. But again, that's our responsibility. We have to make sure that our children are, are learning the truths, that the rest of the people in the world are also learning. Um, and, you know, making just, we, you know, all of the things that are inaccurate right now, we should make sure that they are addressed, that funds are, mm. are properly distributed, that perhaps Blacks go to college for free because for so many hundreds of years, everything was stolen from them, from the continent, from them. And then they gave so, such free labor. Um, you know, I could just go on and on. Uh, but I think there's so much for the executives of the world to do. And many of them are actually doing it. And it's our responsibility to come up with some great, strategies and then uh, make sure that people are actually uh, living up to whatever it is they say they're going to do. And the only way we can do that is by coming together and establishing, uh, you know, organizations where we're being held accountable to one another and creating uh, strategies. There's so many things that we can do. There's, you know, there's a Jewish defense league. Well, let's have a, an African defense league or, you know, whatever we're going to call it. There, you know, it just goes on and on and on with the things that we can accomplish that and that we can ensure others are are doing. You know, that especially when we put someone in office that they that we make sure that they live up to all of the promises that they made and that we have some. Um, you know, we have a to-do list for them as well. We just have to be more involved and more uh, hold people accountable. What about the issue of police contracts in America right now? 
Is there another way to discuss police contracts in America without doing business with unions who historically protect the police? Are you talking about the police brutality bonds? Because if you're talking about the police brutality bonds, I think the police brutality bonds in every city must be regulated. You know, that way, when these officers are committing these criminal activities against um, nonviolent citizens and they go to jail, that perhaps the police officers are the ones that have to pay their own. Uh, you know, there's so many ways to combat that so that they're not the banks aren't encouraged to lend these police departments money for the purpose of their, um, you know, court fees and then receive an absorbent amount of interest on it. Because then that way, no one is ever going to um, change police brutality. Do you think we'll ever live in a timeline where the police ever acknowledge that they're part of the problem and ask how they can do better? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that there are good police officers and there are bad police officers. And I think that the good police officers have to speak up, you know, Mm. and I think that, listen, unfortunately, I think that the bad officers should be, they shouldn't be in there because, you know, I saw something where they said they want to change it to peace officers. (laughs) Now, maybe Mm. the people who were attracted to becoming police officers might not be attracted to being a peace officer, you know, and... If these police officers are supposed to protect and serve us, right, they work for us. We don't work for them. We're not, you know, their little hunting, you know, toys that they can just randomly harass and shoot at their whim. They're supposed to be protecting and serving us. There's been a big conversation about defunding the police right now and suggestions for the police to take a cut out of their pension. What's your stance on defunding the police right now? I think that defunding the police would be a really good idea. Um, And perhaps they can take some of that, the money that they take away from police officers and and put it into um, programs for young people, um, education, professors. Um, There's so much that can be done with it. I think to put so much money into police departments and um, is just, you know, it it, it sends the wrong message to our societies. Ilyasa Shabazz, thank you for joining us on Fly Fidelity. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Also, I am very pleased to see so many who have come out to always uh, see for yourself where you can hear for yourself and then think for yourself. Then you'll be in a better position to make an intelligent judgment for yourself. But if you form the habit of listening to what others say about something or someone or reading what someone else has written about someone, somebody can uh, confuse you and misuse you. So as Afro-Americans or black people here in the Western Hemisphere, you and I have to learn to weigh things for ourselves. No matter what the man says, you better look into it. An example of why it's so important to look into things for yourself. I was on a plane between Algiers and Geneva, uh, and it just happened that two other Americans were sitting in the two seats next to me. None of us knew each other, and the other two were white, one a male, the other a female, 
And after we had been flying along for about 40 minutes, the lady, she says, could I ask you a personal question? I said, yes. She said, well, she had been looking at my briefcase, and she said, well, what does that X? She says, uh, what kind of last name could you have that begins with X? So I said, that's it, X. And she said, well, what does the M stand for? I said, Malcolm. So she was quiet for about 10 minutes. And, and she turned to me and she says, you're not Malcolm X. <laughs> you see, I have, we had been riding along in a nice conversation, like three human beings, you know, no hostility, no animosity, just human. And uh, she couldn't take this. She said, well, you're not who I was looking for, you know? And, uh, and she ended up telling me that she was looking for horns and all that and, and for someone who was out to kill all white people, as if all white people could be killed. <laughs> this was her general attitude, and this attitude had been given her, uh, this image had been given her by the press. So before I get involved in anything nowadays, I have to straighten out my own position. And which is clear, I am not a racist in any form whatsoever. I don't believe in any form of racism. I don't believe in any form of discrimination or segregation. I believe in Islam. I'm a Muslim.